Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I realized that happiness had very little to do with money. You got to have what you need in life, right? You got to work to get what you need and then go from there. But the happiness is not something you're going to get by making money. And you're not even going to be happy when you make money unless you're already happy. At least that's my experience. You may know him best as Dave, the baker and brand visionary behind Dave's Killer Bread. But Dave has lived many identities. Inmate, art dealer, philanthropist, entrepreneur, and criminal. The thread that ties them all together is one of courage and a relentless commitment to himself, even in the worst of times. You know, the suicidal phase lasted for quite a while before I finally gave in to this idea of asking for help. And that's not something that you would do in prison. People don't ask for help. I didn't know medication was the answer, but they gave me some meds when I asked. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a one-for-one charitable podcast. a big fan of Dave's Killer Bread. I had it first on a trip to Oregon, and ever since, it has been a staple in my home. After hearing Dave Dahl's interview with Guy Raz on how I built this, I knew I wanted to have him on the podcast. His story is of redemption, of falling down and getting back up over and over again. He grew up in a seventh-day evangelist home and eventually ran away from the strict rules that confined him. On a quest to find himself outside of the church, Dave fell into a life of drugs, crime, and a lot of prison time. Then one day, inside the walls of his cell, he decided to quietly ask for help. That simple act changed the rest of his life. Dave became obsessed with the idea of becoming better, a better prisoner, eventually a better baker, a better businessman, and a better human being. His story is complex and filled with dark chapters of wrestling with addiction and his mental health. But ultimately, Dave's story is a legacy of humility, second chances, and forgiveness. Today's episode is brought to you by All the Happier, a new online digital course rooted in positive psychology. All the Happier takes the lessons and wisdom from all the wiser and teaches you with science-backed evidence how to bring more meaning, connection, positive emotion, and joy into your own life. Class enrollment opens in September and you can learn more by going to allthehappier.com and signing up for our newsletter. Here's today's interview with Dave Dahl. Dave, hello, and welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you for having me. I'd love to have our guests introduce themselves. So Dave, how would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, I'm a, I have a very interesting life. Uh, in the past, it's been, it's ran the gamut from homelessness, but I've learned some amazing lessons along the way. And I would say that I'm a very grateful and um, productive person now. And uh, yeah, I've discovered the great things like humility and acceptance and the courage that those gave me to transform my life. So 
I want to talk about the backdrop of growing up, you as a young boy. What are some of your strongest memories of your childhood, and what was your childhood experience like? Well, my childhood was weird. I would say almost like a, I was in a cult in a way. Seventh-day Adventist upbringing, including Seventh-day Adventist schools and church. And I also worked pretty hard from the age of nine years old. I worked in the bakery with my dad. So I I would say I lived a very sheltered and sheltered life that kind of contributed to the way things ended up going for me. But I wasn't a very happy kid. And what is the life of a Seventh-day Adventist family? What is the belief systems and sort of, for those who don't know, and myself included, what does that look like? I would say that for me, it was strict upbringing, which I think actually was a good thing in a lot of ways. And a lot of life is about heaven. It's not about right now. You're going to do everything the right way so that you belong in heaven. There's Sabbath. For us, it was like the Jewish Sabbath of Saturday. And we were supposed to not do much of anything from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday evening. And I went to school with people who were being taught this way too every day. And so I didn't really have a social existence outside of the Seventh-day Adventist circle. And, you know, you talked about the bakery, which was your dad's business. And I have heard you speak about the actual business of baking the bread, but also the ingredients. And that there was, within the religion, this notion that diet, grains, this sort of healthy lifestyle prepared you for heaven. And that was that was actually incorporated into the belief system. It was part of it, yeah. I did hear you speak about the diet and these sort of natural, healthy ingredients that were tied to the religious belief and that this sort of pure, healthy eating, if you would, was part of the gateway to heaven. So I do think it's interesting when we talk about your childhood and baking and how your family baked, that that was a piece of it. So I want to talk about when things began to change for you and you already shared that you weren't happy as a boy. I very much wasn't, yeah. And I'm curious why, looking back, you believe that you weren't happy, and then if you can sort of share with us when things really begin to change in your life in your teen years. I had a lot of time thinking to myself, and I developed certain sorts of thinking that most kids don't develop. And I I definitely became a critical thinker and eventually stopped believing what I was told. And this led to, first of all, depression, anxiety, confusion, and just this sort of lost feeling. And and I really, I had to, you know, I broke away from the Seventh-day Adventist lifestyle. And then it was like, I'm thrown upon the world and all the wolves. And I wanted to believe because it was comfortable to believe, but I, I couldn't. So by the age of 13, I was really out there confused and I couldn't show people who I really was. So there was a tendency to, to hide out under my skin, you know. So I didn't get to learn things the way I should have because I was so busy trying to pretend I already knew it all. And I didn't know anything, you know. It just took me years of searching and a lot of agony, a lot of a lot of falls. As you said, there's depression, mental health is starting to come into play if it hadn't already. And you begin what really is a darker chapter in your life. And I've heard you talk about, you know, hitchhiking and leaving and all of these trips where you were searching and searching for something new and, and a new feeling. But During this time, how is the self-medicating, the drug use starting to escalate? How is that showing up in your life? Well, at the age of 13, 14, I did like drinking beer. Yeah, I guess I'd say hard alcohol, but none of the other drugs I I tried really agreed with me, but I did them anyway, because that's the kind of people I was hanging out with. And I just thought, well, this this is where I'm going. It wasn't until much later that I discovered a drug that I really liked. 
But as you say, you know, I quit school early in my senior year of all times. And I took off cross country hitchhiking, learned a lot on that trip (laughs) the hard way and kept hitchhiking for years after that. And you mentioned discovering a drug that you liked. What drug was that and why? Why did you like it? I was such a miserable guy by this point, by the time that I found that drug, that I was suicidal and it really didn't matter. I was going for broke. So when the opportunity to put a needle full of methamphetamine in my arm came around, I just said, screw it. You know, what do I have to lose? I did that immediately as soon as that drug entered my system, which was real quick in your veins and your brain. It's just like all of a sudden you look around and everything's different. And that's exactly what I needed. It's what I felt that I needed at the time. And I guess I always call it my first transformation in life. Not a good one, but it was eye-opening. You know, there's such a delicate dance when it comes to mental health and the spectrum of addiction. Anyways, you know, all of the ways in which we as, you know, human beings choose to numb and to self-medicate. But I have heard you talk about bipolar disorder later in your life and, you know, reflecting back suicidal ideation. But you also talk about ADD and your eyesight, which I found to be really interesting. Can you share, you know, that aspect of the map of your brain, if you will, the realities of living in your brain? Yeah, okay. That's that's an interesting one. Certainly something I've done a lot of thinking about. For instance, I joined the Marine Corps when I was uh, 18, I believe, and I would not admit that I had bad eyesight, which I did, and I had ADD, no question, but nobody, it was never diagnosed or anything like that. I just couldn't, if we were talking, if you and I were talking, I would not be able to follow what you're saying because I would lose my attention rather quickly. Basically, alcohol and cocaine and meth were drugs that actually made me feel a little better for a while, you know. But I talk about the map of my mind. Definitely, I was depressed to the point of suicide, uh, suicidal ideation on a regular basis. And this continued for many, many years. And there was a lot of reasons not to be happy. What were the reasons not to be happy? Well, it it was low self-esteem led to me doing things that made me go, well, see, that's what I am. I'm just worthless, useless. It's pointless to be alive because everything that I did kind of proved it. So when the methamphetamine came along, it changed everything. All of a sudden, I didn't care about those things anymore. I didn't have the depression. Definitely didn't have depression after that for a while anyway. And I was able to stop thinking about all this stuff that was making me want to die. And when was the first time you were incarcerated, the first time that you were arrested and spent time in jail? I was arrested the first time when I was 17, for, and that was alcohol-related. It was a, a concert that I went to. But it wasn't until way later that I started getting in trouble for major things, and that was my mid-20s. The first time I went to prison was for burglary. And how many times in this sort of many chapters or this long stretch, what did this chapter look like as far as being in and out of the system for you? I was in and out for about, I guess, about 20 years, did 15 of them in prison. I actually didn't have a problem with going to prison the first time because it seemed like I was on a journey. And this was something that I needed to do to get to the next level of who I was. And after I did my first time, which was pretty short, less than a year, I went to Massachusetts and I was running from trouble that I had gotten into again in Oregon, other burglary stuff. And I ended up getting in trouble for armed robbery the second time, not much later. And, you know, I did four and a half years there and many, many experiences I could talk about, mostly bad experiences. But I was always trying to learn how to be a better criminal at that point, because to me, there's no way you're going to live without this drug that has transformed your life. The drug was, to me, my savior. And as we talked about saviors growing up, Jesus Christ, all that. Well, 
This was my savior. And when I was selling that drug, I always felt like I was selling something I believed in. I, it was easy to sell, you know. And I kept doing that, trying to get to be a better and better dealer, someone who could actually make a living at it and turn the money eventually into a legal business. But I always got in trouble before that happened. And when you think of some of those darker moments and stretches within the prison system, what are some of those stories or moments that you think really sort of shaped and defined your experience over those 15 years? Well, I probably got a little bit tougher, which wasn't a bad thing from experiences, from fights and things and and understanding of how things worked over time. I started to get certain things that I wouldn't have got without going to prison I eventually learned that being alone wasn't so bad. It took me a long time. I was very lonely in prison. And when I stopped feeling like I needed other people to make myself feel good, it was a beautiful thing. So the experience for me that really shaped things were the last time I went to prison, I had an epiphany that began with suicidal thoughts and, you know, the suicidal phase lasted for quite a while before I finally gave in to this idea of asking for help. And that's not something that you would do in prison. People don't ask for help, you know. They don't write a letter to the administration and ask for some medication. I didn't know medication was the answer, but they gave me some meds when I asked. And that ask came in the form of I believe the term is a kite. Yes, it's called a kite, but it's uh, short for, you know, inmate communication form. So you reach out and ask for help in the form of a kite. And I'm curious, what do you say in the kite? What are you asking? What are you reaching out for and how do you communicate that? I just say I need to speak to someone in mental health. That's all I said. Something to that degree. But it took me months and years to come to that point where I was able to actually drop this paper in the box. And once I did, it was like immediately I got a sense of relief that I had done it. And help comes in the form of what? Not much except for some medication that they gave me. There wasn't counseling. There was nothing like that. But they gave me a medication called at the time Paxil and then Effexor is what I take now. What this medication helped me do was to not think. And, you know, if I had a negative thought in my mind, I didn't have to choose that negative thought anymore. And it, it opened my mind to being able to, you know, it was part of the process that helped me be able to clear my mind and put it toward positive things. And so shortly after I got this medication, I also, my name came up after a few years of waiting on the waiting list for a computer-aided drafting program, a rare opportunity, a rare uh, vocational tech opportunity that was there at the time, no longer is. And I started out slow, but pretty quickly after that slow start, I just started advancing very quickly in this program and just, I loved it. it It opened my mind to the abilities that I could have. So the chemistry of your brain is changing in a way that's making a real impact. And you're now learning computer drafting and having that be a part of your day-to-day experience. And that computer drafting, I know it really shifted the way you thought about yourself and your potential. How did it change the way you experience your thoughts about your future? Because you, you know, as you've said, you largely expected to die in prison. And that drafting class with the medication begins to change your vision of what may be ahead. Yes, all that is true. Those two things, along with realizing the power of humility, acceptance, which was all part of the process, you know, realizing that I didn't have to be the guy that I was trying to project as who I was and tough guy and independent of, of everything. I, I just became me, the guy who was striving to be better and at least admitting to myself the truth about what my abilities were, what my challenges were, but no longer looking at myself in a negative way, seeing that the potential was there. I was able to see that. I also relieved myself. I began to relieve myself of negative emotions like resentment and hate, and I started forgiving people. From my dad to the corrections officers, I was like, 
No longer is this something that I'm going to harbor and and have affecting me. And I've been I was very good at it. I don't know. I just became very strong that way. And it, I focused. I used my mind and focused on learning drafting. And the drafting itself, I realized it started teaching me lessons right away. Lessons that everybody might know in a certain way, but it's all about designing everything. Design your life on the big. The big picture is you're designing your life with everything you do, right? Every thought and every act on that thought, right? And on a small scale, I was doing it in drafting, constantly taking a template somewhere. I, I have to first draw something that exists, take all the measurements and figure out why this thing is what it is and what's good about it, and then figure out a way to make a better one. So I was able to take a table that construction guys would bring into me, say a table or a bed, and they'd say, well, you know, I like this version, but would you, could you help me make it do this? And I realized that I could. I could do what, anything that, that you could conceive of, I could do it. So this was a powerful thing, and it became symbolic, too, of my life. So you get out of prison this time, and you have transformed as a result of everything you just shared. So what happens after you get out of prison on the other end of this really life-changing transformation that happens within the walls of the prison? So my mom gave me her garage to stay in. Felt just fine to me. It was a humble beginning and it didn't bother me. I've lived on the streets and I've lived in prison many years. So it was actually very nice. And then I went to start working for my family and I started very humbly at 12 bucks an hour and filling in for people. And at the same time, I was thinking, well, I am going to create items or create products for this company that will help this family business that's in a way struggling Our bread and butter was uh, making products for Trader Joe's. We didn't really have a brand, and we were just a co-manufacturing plant. And I, as I was creating more products, my ideas just took on a life of their own, and it went a different way. And, you know, when I hear you talk about it, there is artistry to it, and there is creation, and and the way you think about it, to me, is so dimensional, like multidimensional. But I wonder at that time, what did baking and what did the creation of these recipes mean to you? They were just pleasure. They were, I mean, I, pleasure is too simple of a word, but I just enjoyed the process. And what I did is I went out and I checked what other people were doing. I reverse engineered those products and figured out what made them good and, you know, stand out. You know, from there, once I figured that out, I was like, okay, I can do this and make it even better. And that was my whole thing was like always striving to make something better. Now, I was worried at first. I didn't think I could do it. You know, I mean, it's just, it's the unknown. But through the process of being able to fall down and get right back up again and learn from the experience, that I had learned, this was such a powerful thing and I just kept doing that. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting to tie it together that you had fallen and gotten back up so many times that now you're, you're doing this in the setting of the family bakery. And not only are you sort of obsessed with making things better, but also doing it differently. What was different about what you were creating if you can share taking it out into the farmer's market and the early stages of beginning the brand. Yeah, just an incredible experience. Within six months or so after I got out of prison, I was already making my own product. I didn't know it was going to do what it did, but the whole process of making the product was, the challenge was there's some good products out there already that I liked. And I'm like, how am I going to make that better? But I did through the process of reverse engineering and then adding ingredients, subtracting ingredients, and then a bunch of experiments to figure out how to mix it properly. There was so much more to it. And the process I loved, you know, again, it was the falling down, the getting back up. And and the more I had success with my comebacks from overcoming the fall and getting back up and, and learning from it, the more I had success with that, the more confidence I had. And I started having confidence with everything, you know. If somebody told me that I couldn't do something, I was like, okay, that's what you think. And I would do it. And 
the more they would tell me I couldn't do something, the more I believed I could. The challenge that we had at first, though, was that we had created a product that cost more. People weren't used to paying for this kind of quality in bread. So this was a, a worry that we had at first, that people wouldn't pay for it. But it, it was just the opposite. People were like, I want the best bread. I'm going to pay a little more for it. And this was like we had an immediate we had immediate success as far as the response. When I took it to the farmer's market in August of 2005. The response was phenomenal. I remember a lady coming up and going, older lady, she, she came up and tried all the samples. We had, I only took four varieties to the market, and she tried all the samples, walked away. I didn't think too much, much about it. I was like, okay, maybe she doesn't really care that much. She comes back with a group, a big group of people, and that just became the way things were. The more somebody tried the bread, the more they brought their friends and we started having like swarms of people at the farmer's market and at the same time you know i had to tell my story because we were calling it dave's bread who's dave so because my, it was my brother's idea to call it dave's bread we went with that and i'm like but if i'm going to be if it's going to be dave's bread who's dave we got to tell people who dave is and so i had to uh i i guess Deep down, on a certain level, I knew this was the right way to do things. But one way or the other, I had to I had to tell them. It was just automatic that you have to know who Dave is. So I wrote a story on the back of the bag, and it was accepted just as much as the bread was. I mean, it was just a, as big a deal to people as the bread itself. So I had all this appreciation. I started getting media attention, and the rest is history. And Dave, I was thinking about the power of story and obviously it's the reason that you and I are having this conversation and I do the podcast because I believe in the power of sharing our stories, but did things change for you when you shared yourself and your story with the authorities that be within the prison system and that now you find yourself at the farmer's market sharing your story with lawyers and doctors and all of these people who are coming through, as you just shared, the story matters to them as much as the bread. I just thought it was an interesting through line in your experience. It is. It's just one of those many aspects of how beautiful this was where, you know, these are people I would have never, the people that were coming and eating my bread and giving me feedback on my bread. And I was handing the loaf of bread over to anybody from a, a doctor, lawyer, judge, a politician, a sports person, journalist. These are people I would have never met. I'm so blessed because it was great. I was, I was definitely above my pay grade, if you will. You know, I, it was interesting and a lot of fun and so gratifying. Once I realized that my story had this sort of power to it, and the story was never contrived. I never made anything up. It was just the way it was, you know. And the people loved the story so much. And the business is taking off. And by no means is this all perfect. Your brother had been running the company. I know his son, who you worked, my understanding, is very closely with, who was sort of this young prodigy finance mind, fresh out of college. He hated me. Yes. So I know that there is, and I and I don't want to spend too much time talking on the family conflict, but there's a lot at play. You now suddenly, your fame and your profile is rising. The product and brand that you have created is beginning to sort of skyrocket into grocery stores around the country. And it is a quickly growing and scaling company with family management. And I think a lot of family businesses, right? There's a lot of conflict and emotion. So I would imagine for somebody who struggled with mental health and addiction, this is a lot for you to be experiencing at once. But I do want to speak to now Dave's Killer Bread, I would say is to most people, a household name certainly is in our house. When do things change from farmer's market to Costco, if you will? What is the story of the explosion of the product and the brand that is tied to your personal story? Yes, people don't realize how difficult all that is until, you know, they've been in that situation where, okay, there was the conflict within the family. I always had to be ahead of hiring people because we couldn't afford to hire people until... 
we proved that we could afford to pay him for what we're going to do. So uh, my wife now, currently, and myself started, in 2008, we were going out doing lots of work that normally would be done by the store employees and such, plus doing demos, just constantly out there selling product and making product. And the work was just nonstop. And I actually loved mostly every minute of it. But then Costco actually came at us in about 2007. I got a letter from Costco saying, hey, we want your product. We were in a 15,000 square foot facility, which was, and with our equipment, everything that we had, there was no way we were going to handle Costco. We might have been able to handle one or two stores. We didn't have any kind of money, and we also didn't have any real credit. So my brother had to put up his house, and we had to find a, a bank who would loan to us, and that was very hard to do, and the interest rate was high, and we just had to do what we had to do. By early 2009, we were in Costco, and then the fun really began. And you begin to hire inmates, I believe a third of the employees, and that was really important to you as a businessman and a leader within the company. Can you share, it's obvious why that would be important to you, but share your belief system and second chances in employing people coming out of the prison system? One of the things that I discovered through my transformation, you know, not only, it was sort of this thing about forgiveness. I forgave everybody. I started being forgiving and I I stopped having, didn't want to have negative thoughts. And I also knew that I had had this great transformation. Why couldn't other people have transformations too? I had to learn pretty quickly that, You don't just hire your friends or hire any old ex-con. But if you hire the right people, period, whether they're ex-cons or something else, you hire the right people, they are going to be great for your company. That's what you got to do. They're human resources that make your, your company better or worse. And we got to a point where we were growing really rapidly over about a year's time. I think after the Costco thing, we had to hire 50 people in a very short time. And, and we were using temporary services. And uh, once they realized we were willing to hire ex-cons, that's all they sent us was ex-cons. And once we realized that's what they were doing, we had to put a stop to that because we wanted to have the best person for the job. It didn't matter what your background was for the most part. But one thing that we learned, what I felt kind of in my gut all along was that people given a second chance can really be great human resources, as I said. And it's very meaningful because that person not only gives their heart to the company, but it changes their relationship to the community and they pass along good things to the community, including their family, the business owner, and the community at large. It just changes. Each each of those people has an effect. And that's a very exciting thing to me. So you are now the face of a very successful brand and your story, which is a story of transformation. It's a story of redemption. This guy was, you know, quote unquote, bad. Now he's creating good in the world. He's sober and it's in millions of kitchen pantries and counters. It's certainly in thousands of stores around the country. And Canada and Mexico. And And yeah, yeah, I know. I should stop limiting your distribution to the U.S. (laughs) Thank you. But it's also the investors, right, are investing in that version of you. And you're now, as you said, you're in the New York Times, you're speaking at San Quentin. And so I guess what I'm getting at is the pressure of the story of transformation, that all of this is riding on you being sober. I mean, is that true? Was there pressure around that? I did a lot of speaking and writing and interaction with the community. And the more I drank, I still was doing it. I was still, I was still getting a lot of kudos. And, you know, the drinking was happening at night and I was drinking with people. The thing is, I wasn't hiding that I was drinking. I was hiding how much I was drinking. I would even have a couple of drinks before I went and did a speech and I'd get a standing ovation from all these people. And I, I'm thinking, well, uh, I'm not doing nothing wrong. You know, but one thing led to another. Things started happening, and about the same time that we sold the first half of the company to investors, things were starting to get kind of squirrely, even though I was still pretty much on my game. But there were incidents that happened that kind of made things worse and worse. What were those incidents? 
Well, the first one that comes to mind is I was drinking on a plane coming back from an event in uh, Southern California, and I had an assistant at the time who was sitting in front of me on the plane, and I was I was partying with these two guys in the in the row that I was in, one on each side of me, and we were just having a blast. Well, my assistant was, you know, I would say talking smack to me, but that's what I felt at the time. And I was just playing around, and I, I gave him a little, I would call it a love tap, but he thought it was a very disrespectful thing. And the next thing I knew, I was I was the president of the company, but I was getting called on the carpet by the CEO, who was somebody we had just recently hired. And he was like, you know, we, we got problems. And here I was, uh, I was starting to just kind of be sort of a loose cannon, and it all added up to me looking like a real jackass. Yeah, and I heard you speak about reading an article about yourself called Breaking Bread, which was a play on Breaking Bad, and that that was a very hard moment for you, seeing some of this behavior reflected back in the written word. It was a huge deal, but there's a context that has to set that up, I think. After the incident with my assistant, which changed a lot of things, I went to treatment in Utah got cleaned up and all that. And uh, within a short time, I was drinking again. And it wasn't back to the level that it was or anything, but it seemed like I couldn't go anywhere without somebody seeing me and reporting me. <laughs> so eventually I talked with the CEO and we said, well, how about a sabbatical? Let's see what we can do with a sabbatical. And I ended up leaving. I ended up uh, going on the sabbatical. And then while I was uh, drunk one night, and at my cabin out in the mountain, a friend of mine was there. And long story short, he took my van and ended up dead. He was found 47 days later in a ditch with a needle close by. Then just things just kept on getting bad. And I actually quit drinking for a while, for about a month. And one day I was called in by a guy that we were sponsoring. He was a big bodybuilder guy. And he wanted to take pictures at the at breadquarters, but I had been outlawed at breadquarters. I had been banished from breadquarters, but I went anyway. I was just screw this because I at this point I was beginning to have this manic mode that I was in, and I was just doing whatever I wanted to do and screw everybody that didn't like it. And I walked in there to the front of the place where we sell day old product and such, and. I saw this cardboard cut out of myself and I walked up and punched it because I'm like, I realized now what it was, was sort of this guy's here and I can't be here. <laughs> you know, this just didn't make sense. It didn't work for me. So I punched that cardboard cut out and that scared a lot of people. People started, uh, it just, things started spiraling out of control. But that night I ran into three cop cars and I've been in trouble ever since for that. But after going to a mental place for about three weeks, I got out and I was just very, or still hypomanic, they call it. When I saw this article come out about me, it took me from manic to super depressed really quick. I had never seen negative press about myself before. And at that time, I just couldn't handle it. So I went into a, the biggest depression of my life. At what point were you diagnosed with bipolar disorder? I had been diagnosed after that incident with the cops. And how and when do you begin to rebuild your life from there? Because you're in a very different place, to my understanding, than you were there. So what does that look like, the rebuilding of your life? And certainly a roller coaster from walking out of prison, finding the passion, the success, and then this step backward in that journey. Yeah, and you really couldn't see this coming. I spent most of 2014 hypomanic and even had one moment of sort of psychosis where I had to sit in this chair and not move because I knew what was going on, but I couldn't control anything. So I just sat in that chair and it eventually passed. That's the level of mania where it crosses over into psychotic. And so it was terrible. That same year, I started working out again. I was taking care of myself. I got in the best shape I'd been in for maybe 15, 20 years. Everything was going just great. But eventually, we sold in 2015, we sold the final part of the company. And I was sitting there on eBay. And I had also started taking meds for an operation I had. It was pain pills. 
But I liked those pain pills so much that I got hooked on them. That's my personality. You know, I have to really be conscious of this problem that I have where if I like something, I get hooked on it, right? So it was another challenge I had to go through. This was a very uncomfortable way to be. I had really transformed my life, and yet here I was in this kind of compromised situation, not being the guy I should be, but it was another part of the process. And there's this sense of service that I've always had, that I've had since I had my transformation. My story and my transformation means something to more than just me. So like right now, I I just recently lost 20 pounds because I got out of shape and I'm continuing to do that. I'm very goal-oriented. I get stuff done. The things that I'm most proud of are things like my support of an organization called Constructing Hope here in Portland that helps people essentially do what I did by going into a drafting program. They go into construction, and it helps them transform their lives when they're ready. So this stuff is very meaningful to me, and I support them in a lot of different ways. There's so many moments where you have the rebirth and this vacillating between lightness and darkness which I imagine in perhaps much more subtle ways, but that people can relate to. Do you have the fear of going back or the fear of another crash? I don't know if it's fear, it's knowledge. It's like I knew way back in 2007 and eight when I was writing my memoirs, I wrote down that there's a monster out that's still there and can still get me. And it did. So you can never say that it will never happen again because you just, I don't think it's healthy not to realize that it can happen again. And it has happened in its own way over and over again. But I don't know, I always, I think I'm in such a good place that it's very unlikely to happen again. It's about keeping these positive things moving forward, these positive activities, goals, you know, and reaching milestones and moving forward again, you know. I love that part, that part of my life, and that's what I have to continue. And what are the things that help you stay the course? What is in your toolkit or what works for you to continue on this path of healing? Well, I think that's what I said is basically it. For me, it's about having goals. It's about understanding the things that have got me, the principles that got me successful. And I, when I say successful, I mean mentally successful to the point where eventually I can make Dave's killer bread and such. I realize my mind is powerful, like everybody's mind can be powerful. It is powerful, whether you choose negativity or positively or just sit around and do nothing, which is also negative. Your mind does is so powerful and creates your, your future. So... I feel really good when what I do makes a difference in other people's lives. And so I have the gift, fortunately, of having a a life where I struggled so much and overcame so much that I can pass that on to people. So that's a part of it, you know, the service aspect and and giving back. Uh, I learned giving back a long time ago is not about making money. It's about doing it because you believe in what you're doing and you think it, it matters. I exercise every day. I guess very much a very important part. And you've lived all of these lives and identities of an inmate, a homeless man, a businessman extraordinaire, a philanthropist, a baker, an entrepreneur. Product developer, brander. <laughs> yeah. All of it. A father. Yeah. A criminal. By the way, a really bad criminal, just in case anybody thinks I'm special. <laughs> So all of those are identities and labels, right? You're a criminal, you're a crazy successful entrepreneur, you're a brand visionary, all of those labels and identities. Who would you say you are at the core, knowing what you know about yourself now? Well, if I look back at my childhood and how I tried to forget my childhood, actually, and and move on from it, the best thing that I ever learned, I believe the concept is humility. When you understand what I say about humility, it's not about bowing down or being less than. Definitely not. In in fact, it means that you are your best because you understand who you are and you can do the things you need to do to enhance and make that the best you can be, including always being open to learning because you don't know it all. These are great things that can pay lip service to that, but the more that you actually are humble and accepting of reality. Those things, I think, make you courageous. So I believe I'm a courageous person nowadays. I don't think I had uh, any real courage until I was uh, 38 years old and had that moment where I dropped that kite in the box. 
that was a courageous moment I see now. Courage is definitely not macho. Courage is following through with what you believe in your gut, doing the right thing. But I, I just feel like I'm a strong human being. I'm a creative human being. I am much less physically capable than I was when I was a young man. My body's older, but I'm wiser, and I'm also capable of working through that problem. I'm a problem solver. I'm, I think I'm a kind person. I've learned how to be kind without being, uh, for the most part, a victim. <laughs> so I just feel like I'm a, a pretty good guy. We talked about all of these polarities and experiences, and, and we didn't touch on it, but I think it's something that has money, has a lot of energy around it, right? Regardless. Mm. What did Dave's Keller Bread sell for? $275 million, the second time. The second time. So you have lived with and without. Is there a misconception there or how have you processed those two sort of vastly different realities? I have processed. Yeah, I have processed that. I think it's very important. I remember thinking from the time that I had my transformation, began my transformation at the age of 38 while in prison, I... I realized that happiness had nothing, very little to do with money. You got to have what you need in life, right? You got to work to get what you need and then go from there. But the happiness is not something you're going to get by making money. And you're not even going to be happy when you make money unless you're already happy. At least that's my experience. I was happy living life, doing it the right way, creating things, and just working towards something. That is what made me happy. Making the money, if anything, it was a pitfall for me at first. So having money and having fame, if you will, people being excited because you're in the room and stuff, just because of your so-called fame, without knowing me and such, you know, that's all that stuff's kind of fleeting and not, it's not something you want to grab onto. Dave, where are you in your life today? If you can paint a picture for us. I'm in a good, good place. It's funny. I believe people shouldn't trip on getting older. I'm 58 years old and there are certain aspects of my life that are so good that I missed my youth. I missed the, the health, the physical abilities of my youth. But I also love the person I am today who's okay with who I am today. In fact, happy, very happy about it. I'm a guy who cares about giving back to the community. I am a husband. I got married uh, last year with the woman I have been with for about 12 years. I am a father of two grown daughters, and they have three daughters between them and so that makes me um, a grandfather of three granddaughters you know i am very much into exercise eating right now staying out of trouble <laughs> what do you hope for your legacy how would you like for people to look back and remember you yeah the, i guess that he was real he was imperfect he was okay with that he overcame things and he passed on that knowledge and wisdom to other people so that they could do well. The work that he did reached many people in one way or another and he left the world a better place than he found it. Now I'm not sure I can do that. But that would be nice. Well yeah and I think to your point about taking the lessons into creating the recipes that you know how to get back up and get back up. And, you know, I've also heard you say, which I think is a great note to end on, that it's in fact the most challenging circumstances that can be used to bring about miraculous change in our lives. And that has been your commitment to yourself. And I think it's a great message for our listeners. So thank you for letting me end the interview, sharing your wise words. And I'm really grateful to have been able to meet you through the podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's been one of those things that's like life where, you know, you fall down a lot and you get back up. And if they knew the listening audience, when they hear this, knew how many technical <laughs> difficulties. <laughs> that's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> they would know how patient you are and kind and trying and trying again. So thank you for that. And we're going to We end. did it though. We did it. Didn't we? we did okay. it. We crushed it. I'm going to end with something that's just fun and light, which we could use after our technical difficulties. And I'm just going to ask you a few questions and fire off whatever comes to your mind first. I'll do my best. If you were a superhero, what would your powers be? 
it would actually be the power to make everyone understand the humility and how they could just stop being victims and start, you know, making something happen with their lives. The one food you couldn't go without. Wow. Milk. Uh, non-fat milk. <laughs> Favorite feel-good song. How about More Than a Feeling, Boston? Morning, noon, or night? Morning. If you had a time machine, where and when would you go? I think I would uh, go back to my youth. <laughs> Start over knowing what I know now. Favorite quote or words of wisdom? Be the change you want to see in the world. Thank you, Dave. Again, it was a pleasure, and I'm really excited to share our conversation with our listeners. All right. Well, I hope to share it with me. So. <laughs> <laughs> I will share it with you. For those of you who are new to the show, All the Wiser is a one-for-one -one charitable podcast. And what that means is for every episode you hear, we donate $2,000 to a charity. So it is fitting that Dave chose to have his donation go to Construction Hope, a nonprofit in Portland, Oregon, dedicated to second chances and rebuilding the lives of people and their community. They do this by no cost, skills training, education, placement services, and career advancement support in the construction industry, creating a pathway to a better and brighter future. You can learn more about their work at constructionhope.org. We have a goal this season to get to 1,000 ratings for All The Wiser. We are currently at 518, so that means we're halfway there. If you listen to the show, you know that we make each episode to inspire while contributing to charities in meaningful ways. But in order to continue this, we need to make the show more visible. And that is where you come in. I kindly ask that you would take a quick pause from whatever you're doing right now. It shouldn't take more than 30 seconds. And go to Apple Podcasts to rate the show. If you can leave a review, even better. It really does go a long way. As always, thank you for listening to the show and a special thanks to those of you who rate and or review us. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.